When a freak skiing accident left Justin Kleider laid up on his couch, he needed something to do. And by chance, he discovered a whole new world of motorcycle adventure that would lead him to all kinds of adventure around the world, South America, Mongolia, and many more. This story kind of reminds me of that saying, it's not what happens to you, but how you react that matters. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Brian Phil. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Fair. Jim Jansen, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Hi, I'm Justin Kleider. I'm born and raised in Minnesota. I'm a traveler and motorcycle enthusiast. Justin, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. It's really great to be here. I'm really excited and humbled to be on your podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And you, you said traveler and motorcycle enthusiast. Traveler, is that like an all-round traveler or is it moto travel? Well, lately it's mostly been moto travel, but I've certainly got a long line of travel in my blood. I was an exchange student to the country of Greenland right out of high school. And I really think that that set the buzz deep for me. You, you know, I, I saw that and I wondered that because I thought that's almost like one of those little leg up things that you get, like however you came across as I assume you, you worked hard at something and you won a contest or, or were chosen somehow, but that's like that, that little leg up that sort of changes or could change somebody's life because you ended up going back again to Greenland but, but do you think that was sort of the, that kickoff for you for, for travel, spark the interest? You know, I'd like to say that, yes, un, undoubtedly, it certainly made a huge impact on me. But I think back to even just being a, a little kid, and I've, I've always been one of those people that just really wanted to push my boundaries. Like if I was told that, okay, you can go to the edge of the backyard. You know, I'd always want to go just a few feet beyond that and see what was out there as well. So you were trouble as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Hey, yeah. I, I, I'm going to ask you about your first bike, your first big bike. It's a five horsepower Briggs and Stratton. Talk about that bike. Yeah, so that was the first one that was in our family. The, the first mini bike that I ever rode, I'm not even sure how many horsepower it was, but boy, it, it wasn't balanced and I was pretty young and that thing shook me right off of it. And I, I probably fell maybe 10 feet into my first experience of being a motorcyclist. And when I got back on though, it, it just, it was part of me. I knew that that was just the most exciting thing I had ever done and just wanted to do more. But yeah, like you mentioned, I started out on a home built Briggs and Stratton uh, powered 
home-built mini bike. My uncle built it for me in his industrial arts high school shop class and brought it home. And it was a pull start. I couldn't even start it myself. And yeah, that was, that was my first love. You said your, your grandfather was pushing you to get into motocross. That's a pretty cool influence. It's no surprise that you got into riding so early. You know, it was really, I, it's basically the beginning for me was being born into a family of motorcycle enthusiasts. And I know that it was tough for my mom. She was always worried about my well-being and making sure that I stayed safe. And she wasn't super excited about everyone else pushing me towards motorcycles. But yeah, my grandfather was really the beginning of it all for me. And then my uncles and my stepfather, all of them rode motorcycles. So it was a pretty easy transition for me, always being surrounded by those things, you know, by, by people who also loved motorcycles and saw the joy and benefit that you can get out of riding two wheels. And I wasn't ever one of these kids that was tough to get outdoors. I, I wanted to be outside most of the time anyway. And so with our little group, I have two younger cousins that are just a few years younger than me and the Corey and Luke and the, the three of us, we would cruise around our suburban neighborhood on our mini bikes and the three wheeler. And we also had a Suzuki Rover, which was a kind of a beast of a machine with a tiny engine. And boy, those are, those were the days for sure. Did you get your license as soon as you're of age? You know, I wanted to, but there was a big, and I've heard other folks on your podcast mention this as well as my mom was always pretty steadfast that if I wanted to have my motorcycle license, that I better be ready to move out first. <laughs> so I did get my car license at 16 and it took a couple more years. It actually took leaving and going away to Greenland for a year and then coming home. And we had a, a tough conversation one evening and I asked her if maybe it would be better for her if I were to come home every night on my motorcycle instead of being living away from home and she wouldn't know whether or not I made it home each night. And somehow that must have worked because I was able to get my motorcycle license and still stay in the home. Nice, so that was nice good. sales tactic. That was amazing. So that's where you, <laughs> that's where you started out being a salesman right there. Yeah, I'll tell you, it comes in handy at times to get my way. <laughs> You, you just said you're in Greenland for a year. So talk about that. Is that, that an ex a student thing? Yeah, I, I was a Rotary International Exchange student. And I remember it was, I believe it was the, the end of my sophomore year or sometime in my junior year of high school. I was in study hall and this gal sat down next to me with a, a big coffee table book on France. And I was like, hey, what what's that all about? And she's like, oh, well, I'm going to apply to be an exchange student. I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. What's, what's the story with that? And we got to talking about the exchange program. And I thought, you know what? I think I want to do that. And yet I was really, I really enjoyed my group of friends in high school. And I didn't really want to miss my senior year of high school. So I finished out high school and graduated. And then I went to Greenland the year after high school when everybody else went off to college. I got on a plane and 
flew through Ottawa and then to Iqaluit in Fro- or Frobisher Bay on Baffin Island and then made the final jump over to Greenland to a place that was just completely unknown to me. And it was the most exciting thing in my life, preparing to go there. I went to the public library in the city of St. Paul, the biggest library that we had at the time. This is all pre-internet. And they had three books on Greenland. So the amount of information that I had before going there was just really minimal. And I just still remember stepping off the airplane and looking at my surroundings and realizing for the first time that I didn't really speak a word of the language of the country that I was going to be in for the next year and just how exciting that was. A little bit terrifying at the same time, but <laughs> I'm sure. pretty what, exciting. What was the draw to Greenland? Just something different? You know, honestly, my another one of my loves is snow sports, both skiing and snowboarding. And at the time, I, I looked at the list of countries that I could go to and essentially any of them that had snow where I knew that I could snowboard were okay with me. So right. I had picked New Zealand, Germany, and Greenland. And out of 262 students, I was the only one that had chosen Greenland. So I was a shoe-in fit. So it's what, an incredible place. I mean, just stunning. And there's... It, the land mass of Greenland is is huge. It would stretch from Alaska essentially all the way down into the, the lower 48. And there's only 56,000 people or maybe maybe there's a few thousand more than that now. It's, it's very sparsely populated. That's the total population? It's incredible. When wow. I went to the capital city to be a student, the population at the time in, in 1992 was 14,000 people in the capital city. And that was by far the largest settlement in the whole nation. Uh, Most of the settlements are a couple thousand people only, and they're separated by hundreds of miles of roadless terrain. So if you want to get from settlement to settlement, you either need to go by air or by sea. At 19, you did your, your first solo motorcycle trip. Can you set that up? Yeah, for sure. So when I got back, I just, all I wanted to do was get a motorcycle. I don't know if it was having no real road transportation in Greenland or just, it was time to get back on two wheels. And I found myself a a nice used Honda Shadow 500. And I had a really great friend growing up all through school, Eric Zellner. It was just my, my best bud. We would ride 10 speeds all around before we got our motorcycles. And he bought himself a, a Honda as well, and we were all set to go and take our first weekend or long weekend trip. We were heading from St. Paul, where I grew up, up to Fargo, North Dakota, and then over to Detroit Lakes, where they have a, a big 4th of July celebration and lots of motorcyclists come out to experience Detroit Lakes. And we headed out late as usual we were just slow getting packed up and ready and so at the last minute we decided you know what we don't have the right gear to put our stuff onto these motorcycles so let's just throw all of our stuff in our buddy's car and we'll take off and you know as kids when you got a you got an idea in your head and you're you're heading out to go take a trip and there's all this enthusiasm and excitement and the idea of like 
just maybe waiting until tomorrow when it's daylight. <laughs> it just doesn't even occur as a, right. a possibility. And so we headed off into a thunderstorm in the Midwest, in the dark. And I think that we probably lost our support car by the first entrance ramp to the interstate. And so we spent our way going to North Dakota, you know, this is pre-cell phone, no Google Maps. I mean, we're just heading up Interstate 94. It's just one highway all the way to Fargo. But we got caught in the rain. And man, that was my first time of understanding that you're outside on a motorcycle. And that means that the elements, no matter what they are, they are going to affect you. And we spent you know, quite a bit of time in gas stations huddled around the coffee machine, like trying to get thought out and make our way the rest of the way to North Dakota. Mm-hmm. And, and it definitely teaches you to be prepared. You know, I think that was the biggest takeaway of, of that trip. When we, when we got to North Dakota, you know, of course you, you've got all this adrenaline and excitement that you've actually made it to your destination. Yeah. And there's just that, feeling of camaraderie that you share with your with your other rider and you know you're sharing stories of oh man i can't believe that did you see that lightning you know and all of these things that you couldn't talk about you know this is pre-helmet to helmet communication and you just get to relive those moments through the trip but the next day we passed a honda dealership and i pulled in and i saw these soft-sided over the saddle saddlebags and I talked to the parts guy and I'm like, man, I've got to have those things, but I probably can't afford them. You know, is there anything you can do to cut me a deal? And he's like, oh yeah, sure. And I, you know, he grabs them off there and I see the dust come off of them. (laughs) And he must've been super excited to get them off of his inventory, but he cut me a 20% deal or something like that. And man, what a change that made for me. All of a sudden I could have my stuff with me on the bike and it was game on from that point. That was in the middle of your trip. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that was literally the second day of our trip. And we were just out riding over to Detroit Lakes from from Fargo, just a short jaunt. And then to take part in the festivities and then come back to North Dakota again. And so, yeah, that was it made a huge difference to be able to have my stuff along with me and not, not be separated from our rain gear. But as we know, proper gear makes a huge difference. And I have a feeling that the rain gear that I had wouldn't have made much of a difference anyway. Mm. And it's always a mistake, isn't it? To put something in a car or a truck, unless it's a chase vehicle set up for your expedition. Because when you get on the road, you quickly realize that you travel at different speeds. There's just something about the car. You can get in, you can sit and you can drive for hours and hours. Whereas we all know with a motorcycle, you tend not to do that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Being separated from the stuff you need is really... It's probably one of the the most important things to think about when you're setting out on a big trip is what do I absolutely need and how can I keep it with me all the time? Mm, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a really good point. Did, did that trip spark off motorcycle travel or was that just an outing with your buddies at that time? No, absolutely. Without a doubt. It was, that was the gateway. I had so much fun on that trip and And when I look back on it now, it's like, really? What was fun about that? You (laughs) sat on an interstate for hours. You didn't get off that main road, you know? And and you just, I just think now with the experience that I've had, 
it's amazing that that was so exciting to me, but really, I think it was just the freedom of the open road and then being on a motorcycle. Everyone in the oncoming lane that you see, you'd be scanning ahead and you you see an illuminated single headlight coming towards you and there's this anticipation of getting that wave across the the median and it's like, "Oh man, that guy's doing the same thing that I am." And you know, you have this wave, this shared wave, you can't see their face or anything, but you see that arm go up and you see them wave. And it's like, well, I'm part of something bigger out here. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just me on the motorcycle, but everybody else who's on a motorcycle knows exactly what I'm going through right now. Then when you finish that trip, do you come back and start thinking about what can I do next? You know, it was a bunch of small little things, you know, it was always a quick escape up to the North shore of Lake Superior you know, really it was anytime we get on the bike, you know, that was, I would take the insurance off my car as soon as spring had sprung in Minnesota. And I wouldn't put the insurance on the car again until November. And I think for my first several cars, my motorcycle was, was more valuable than the car in, in monetary sense. I always had beater cars and just to be able to to be able to keep my motorcycle. And so that was always my transportation. I, I drove two wheels all of the, the months that I could. If there wasn't snow and ice on the road, I was out on my Honda Shadow. We're going to take just a short break. I've got a couple of things to tell you about, a couple of new things to tell you about as well. So I, I think you're going to be interested in this. When we come back though, a freak ski accident changes everything for Justin in this story. Stay with us. Just two little metal buttons can make all the difference between fatigue and comfort for us riders. And those are two firm positive buttons located on the Atlas throttle lock. The Atlas throttle lock is a stunning piece of equipment that clamps unobtrusively to your handlebar and allows you to set your throttle position as you ride. Then you can relax. I have one on my bike and unlike every other throttle lock I've tried, the Atlas has a firm engage and disengage in those two buttons that only require you lifting your thumb. There are other types of locks in the market, and I've not seen anything that works as well, efficiently or accurately as the Atlas Throttle Lock. Their website is atlasthrottlelock.com. Don't forget when you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, atlasthrottlelock.com. Our friends over at uh, Peaky Peaky Overland, Mickness and Elsby, we've had them on the show a bunch of times. They partnered with some other experienced travelers and designed their own luggage systems. So after traveling for many, many years, uh, this group of travelers felt like there was something missing in the luggage market for serious riders. So they set out to design a new set of luggage that is tough, long-lasting, yet affordable, as well as being field repairable. They call it Turkana. Turkana gear is made in South Africa. It's distributed around the world. It's serious adventure luggage that allows you to store your gear safely while you're traveling on whatever kind of adventure. And it leaves money in your pocket that you can use for fuel, like most travelers prefer to do. Have a look at their lineup of soft panniers, dry bags, duffel bags, and handlebar bags 
at turkanagear.com. That's turkanagear.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there, you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. When you ride with IMS Products foot pegs, you are taking advantage of over 40 years of experience building parts for motorcyclists just like you. If you're riding fire roads or back roads mixed with maybe plenty of highway, you should have a look at the ADV-1 and ADV-2 foot pegs from IMS. They are all made from the same incredibly tough 17-4 stainless steel. They all have the incredible design and engineering behind them that IMS puts into all of their foot pegs. Matter of fact, all of their products. They look great, but more importantly, they're going to give you the increased leverage to maneuver that loaded adventure bike. And if you're riding tight trails, maybe more aggressively, check out the IMS products Core Rally and Core Enduro. Oversized, but smaller than the ADV-1 and ADV-2, with a more aggressive tooth to keep your feet planted when the going gets really tough. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. You had one sort of incident uh, where you, you, I think you had a, um, a skiing accident and it sort of put you on a, more of a, of a, a path for motorcycle travel. Can you talk about that? Yeah, for sure. So and that actually followed one of the, those moments in my life where I was out traveling in, in a foreign country. I was down in Peru for a mountain bike trip, but we had an opportunity to rent some Honda dirt bikes. And I rented an XR 400 and just a, such a great, powerful, lightweight, air-cooled bike. And just really had a an incredible eye-opening time. It wasn't my first time riding a motorcycle internationally, but it was the first time I had been in such an incredible place as the Andes Mountains. And so riding that motorcycle, I just, I knew that that was something that I wanted to look forward to doing more of, but I was there, like I said, to mountain bike and we were mountain biking the high passes around the sacred Valley, which is most people know of that area because of Machu Picchu. And so what I'm getting to here a little long windedly is that by mountain biking these high passes in Peru, I had gotten myself into phenomenal shape and I came back to Colorado and all of a sudden we're a couple thousand feet lower than the passes we were in in Peru. And I had all this energy and strength because of training at such high elevation. And so I was feeling like I was really at the top of my game, both mountain biking and skiing. And we had just gotten started in the season and I was heading out into the backcountry on my telemark skis. I actually tripped over a buried tree under the snow and it threw me into a big frozen Douglas fir. And I took it to the head, but I was wearing a helmet. And so it was almost like a football player spearing another player to tackle them. I hit this tree and the helmet pushed my head out of the way and I took it in the shoulder the passive force was enough to move through my body and literally break my right leg off of my body. I fractured my hip at what's technically called the greater trochanter, but it's the neck of your femur, which is the area between the shaft of the femur, that's your thigh bone, and the ball of your femur, which is in your hip socket. 
And that was a, that was obviously a pretty big blow to cause that much damage. I broke some ribs off my, my vertebrae in my back. Are you just walking along or are you skiing? No, I was, I was traversing. So I was in what we call a luge. And so oh. it's kind of a worn in path going through the woods, heading out to where we would actually drop in to our descent. And so it's downhill, but it's just slightly downhill. I bet I was doing 15 or 20 miles an hour maximum. That's it. That's incredible damage for that. It really was. And I think, you know, I've had a lot of time to replay this in my mind and then speaking with different orthopods about it. And we think that really what it was, was not so much the, the speed at which I was traveling, but when I hit that buried tree, the way that it flung me forward is what really accelerated my momentum. It was the, the act of being like falling into the tree. And so the distance between the tree that I had tripped over and the tree that I hit was only about my height, uh, you know, just, just about six feet of distance. And so there was just this incredible force of falling forward and just hitting this giant frozen tree. So kind of like one of those, those uh, little arms that you put a ball in to launch for a dog and you throw it exactly and you get that. so much more speed. Yeah, exactly that. I think they call them a chuck it. <laughs> right. That's exactly that. That's a matter of fact. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was incredible. And, you know, it was, it was really wild. It knocked the wind out of me. Um, I knew I was incredibly injured, but I also didn't really, it wasn't excruciating pain in any way. It was just this, this feeling of, of white numbness, but I was super aware that I couldn't get up and I didn't try to get up. And I think that that's what saved me from further really bad injury. You know, when you break that part of your body, you've got these huge blood vessels that are moving through your groin and are moving blood through your groin down to your lower extremities. And if you sever those blood vessels, that can be it for you in a matter of moments. And somehow I just knew not to move. And by stroke of luck, another snowboarder had come through and I was able to yell to him that I needed help. And, uh, between the, the two of us, we kind of got me situated where I was out of the tree and in a little bit more comfortable situation to wait out ski patrol. And we actually made the phone call and called in ski patrol. I knew exactly where I was on the mountain. So I was able to tell them exactly how to get to me because I was out of bounds and so being out of the ski area boundary, they weren't even obliged to come and get me. But fortunately, they did. And they were really pro, pro ski patrollers. They, they ended up having to lower me down a, a small cliff face to get out. And it was, I was about as far away from help as you could be. We were about, we were at the back of Vail Ski Area, which is just a massive ski area. And so yeah, it was probably a good hour, hour and a half back to town before they got me in to the hospital. Wow. Yeah. And when you break a bone like that, as you were talking about the blood vessels, those broken bones can tear those blood vessels, which is why you're saying you, you didn't want to move. Yeah. And, you know, I did have some emergency medical training earlier in my life. And so, but it wasn't, 
it wasn't like I was sitting there thinking, okay, what shouldn't I do? It was really this overwhelming feeling of, boy, you really did it this time. But I wasn't, I wasn't like screaming in pain or anything. There wasn't, it was more just this numbness in my, my midsection. And, but there was, there was undoubtedly a, a don't move. Don't, don't move a lot. You're, you're just going to make things worse. But yeah, had I stood up in that situation, you know, my leg wouldn't have been able to support my body weight and I could have easily torn one of those blood vessels and, and bled out there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was, it was really touch and go. And, and that, that healing process really was, I had no idea, you know, I was laying in the emergency room, you know, completely jacked up on painkillers at that point. I remember when they pushed the first intravenous fentanyl into my system. I mean, I felt like I floated right off the bed and it was incredible when the surgeon came in, uh, Dr. Sterrett, he's a, an Olympic surgeon for the U S ski team at that time. He came in and I had seen him previously for a, a different injury. And he's like, Justin, what are you doing in here, man? And I'm like, Oh doc, you gotta, you gotta put me back together. It's shaping up to be one of the best seasons I've ever seen. And he's like, Hey man, you got to get focused. You're not going to be uh, skiing this year and we're going to be lucky to have you walking without a walker. Oh, and wow. man, that just, it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks and the severity of, of what I was facing uh, all of a sudden hit me. And that, that was a, that was a big wake up call being in my early thirties and nothing more important to me than, than that rush of, of skiing at, at the, the edge of my ability and mountain biking in incredible places and going as fast as I could. And the idea of, of maybe not walking unassisted the rest of my life was nothing I had ever thought about. And the crash, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, other than the fact you're out of bounds, you're not supposed to be there. But other than that though, I mean, it's like, not like you were doing something stupid. You weren't trying to do a jump or anything like that. It's just a simple traverse. And you know, it's, it's really, it's quite an eye opener. Yeah, it's, that's the truth, you know, and I think that's probably part of what led to it is, you know, when you're, when you're in the moment and you're, you're lined up for a, a really big descent or maybe some small cliff drops or, or whatever it is you're going to do, you, you get hyper-focused for that moment. And I think that at some point I was probably a little lackadaisical. I was like, okay, well, we're just heading out through the luge here and going to get to some good stuff. And it was an epic day, sunny and, you know, excellent snow. We had just had a bunch of fresh snow and that's why I couldn't see the tree that was under there. But you're absolutely right. I, it was, it was a moment where I was not really pushing my limits and, you know, there's a possibility that, you know, my focus was, was not where it needed to be. Now, before you go on to to what you did in your in your recovery time, I'm curious. Looking back now, was that a good thing that this happened? I think in life, everything happens for a reason. It's very cliche. So you you think everything's planned out? Yeah, I think I was. You know, I was just so focused on on pushing things farther. You know, like gosh, I just want to be faster. I want to be stronger. I just I want to be able to to make it that next echelon of, of skiing, you know, be able to, to go bigger, you know, and it was, I, I think I was functioning a little bit 
too much from a, an ego center and just wanting to, to push those bragging rights up the hill, you know? And so I think it was, a, it's just a super reality check. And the people that I, that I encountered after that, the surgeons that I was exposed to and their matter of factness and their frankness and being in the hospital around people. After the first surgery that I had, that emergency surgery, they basically put four five-inch long titanium screws from the outside of my hip into the ball of that femur. And what happened during that initial six-month healing process was that those screws were impeding the flow of blood into the ball of that femur. And I developed a condition called avascular necrosis, which is a fancy way of saying bone death due to a lack of blood supply. And so I thought I was getting better and I was pushing it. I was exercising. I was trying to live clean and right. And after, when I was in for my six month checkup, the doc said, well, how are you feeling, Justin? I said, well, I'm good, man. I'm ready to walk. And he's like, cool. Why don't you go ahead and set that uh, cane up on the bed and, and walk over to me? And he had already seen my x-rays. He knew what was going on. And when I walked that six feet over to him, I looked like the, the hunchback from Notre Dame. I had to swing my right leg out to move it forward. And I really, I mean, it was everything I could do just to walk to him. And he said, so, so how do you feel about that? And I'm like, well, I'm walking without my cane. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you are. But what if I was to say that you know, you're never going to walk better than this. I said, oh man, that's not going to work. Mm -hmm. That's, that's just not going to work for me. Like I got to get back out there. I want to ski again. And he's like, well, you need to go see a specialist. And he told me what was going on. And he recommended that I go see this lady surgeon down in Denver, Dr. Cynthia Kelly, and told me that she had a cutting edge procedure where they could take six inches of my fibula out of my lower leg and implant it into my hip like a Whoa. bone dowel. So this is a strip off of it? Obviously not cutting a full six inches out. No, they cut a full six inches out of the mid shaft. So if you see an x-ray of my lower leg on my right side, I have my tibia, which is the shin bone. But then the fibula, which is essentially a steering strut, for your leg. It goes from your ankle to the outside of your knee. And it's kind of what creates your ankle bone. The middle six inches of that has been cut out and is no longer there. And that is like a nice dowel, essentially, like a shaft of bone. So they pulled the hardware out of my hip and they used a hole saw and basically carpentry tools and made a hole from the outside of my hip through that neck of the femur large enough to put that bone in. And then a microvascular surgeon hooked up the native blood vessels from that fibula to other blood vessels in my groin. And so there's a two-part process. It's functioning as a dowel to give support to the neck of that femur, 
but then it's also pumping fresh oxygenated blood into the inside of the ball of that femur. When she told me that's what they were going to do, I was like, yeah, I mean, cutting up a good part of my body to fix a totally destroyed part of my body, it just seems really counterintuitive to me. Why not Why not just give me a, a hip replacement? I'll be skiing in a couple months. And she's like, yeah, but at your age with the sports that you do, you're just going to wear out hips. And if if you don't wear out the actual hip, the the hardness of that, that artificial hip is going to wear out the socket that you have in your, in your pelvis. She's like, I think that if you want to stay athletic, we need to do this surgery. So go give it some thought and call me back and let me know if you want to want to do that. And so it was, I, I researched it like crazy, you know, this is now internet time. So I was able to dig in and and get on some forums and talk with some other people. But what I realized is that what I was fighting for was to stay athletic. And the people that I was around, the people that Dr. Kelly was working on usually were folks that had terminal illness and that were dealing with non-union and non-repair of fractures due to chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And so these folks are just literally fighting for their lives and I'm just fighting to be athletic. And so I think that that's really was the most growing part of this healing process was that, man, I could be in just such a worse situation. So I just need to focus my energy on getting well, doing what these doctors and physical therapists tell me to do. Just really striving like there's no other job in the world than to get back on my feet and be able to get back out doing what I love. How how does that realization change you from then to now? Like what's different about you? Well, I've been injured several times since then. So I guess the way I go about injury has certainly been improved. Um, But, you know, there was a lot of contemplation time and a, a lot of time in that healing process, it wasn't a short healing process. The, the second surgery, in order for that to work, it required 12 months of toe touch only, which means that I couldn't put any of my body weight on my right leg for an entire year. Wow. So I was bound to crutches after already having spent six months on crutches. I was facing a whole year of this. And so we had a good long talk about what my best chance for healing out of all of this was. And the key was staying super active and super focused on a future goal. And this is where, you know, so many people who have been interviewed on your podcast refer back to long way around. And this was the point at which Long Way Round entered my story. And I was couch bound most of the time other than to get into physical therapy and spend time on the exercise bike because that was the one thing that I could do to get my heart rate up without putting pressure on that leg. And all that time sitting on the couch, I would just watch Motorcycle Diaries and Long Way Round. And I just had that 
as my carrot. It was a physical therapist that I had in Breckenridge, Colorado, that she said, you know what you need? You need a carrot. I'm like, yeah, I need a carrot. All right. What are you talking about? (laughs) She's like, you know, you just need that thing to dangle out in front of you to just be so focused on. This is what I want. This is what I'm working towards. This is where I'm heading. And Long Way Round became that for me. It was like, man, if these guys can do this, I can do this too, if I can just get walking again. And so that was, that was it for me. That was the, the real focus for me. So what did you come up with? What, what was your plan? To retrace their route? No, I just, for some reason, because I had been in Peru, I had been already infected with that Latin American culture and the excitement of being in the Andes. I just figured, why not go to Tierra del Fuego? You know, I'm just going to ride a motorcycle to the bottom of South America. It seemed far enough away to be absurd, but yet attainable. Mm -hmm. And back, this is how many years ago? Uh, We're looking at about a dozen now. I left in November of 2009 and I returned home from Buenos Aires in March of 2011. Wow, so you had, you had a good trip there. And and back then, like in 2009, there wasn't as many people doing it and there certainly wasn't as much on the internet, et cetera, about it. So um, it, it probably felt like it was really something out there. It was really exciting. Yeah. I, I, I fortunately, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, adventure, uh, well, adventurerider.com um, and Horizons Unlimited did exist. And so... I was vaguely aware of them and I actually found the motorcycle that I rode to South America through uh, Adventure Rider. And so it's, you know, I knew of things. I had found Helge Peterson's book and I actually had found an autographed copy of it and I was super excited and I I bought that and I, I got it about two weeks before I left on the trip. So I never even got to read it before I left. But That's 10 years on two wheels, right? Yeah, exactly that book. I mean, the, the cover photo, uh-huh. I mean, you almost don't even need to open the book. The no. cover photo just speaks such volumes. It's, it does. His R80GS laying in this dugout canoe heading up river into the jungle. Yeah, it's I mean, just it's spectacular. so evocative. You know, it's funny, you mentioned about Long Way Round, and, and there's so many people that you hear that will bash Long Way Round, but but I don't care what anybody says, man, they have inspired so many people, and not only entertained, but they've inspired so many other people to go out and do something. It doesn't have to be the same. I'm sure they had a support crew, however you want to look at it. It doesn't really matter. Any adventure is different from another one, but it's, they've inspired so many people like yourself. I mean, that's just amazing. You're so right. And, and honestly, I think what it is, and I've, I've tried, I, I obviously, I speak with motorcyclists often and I try to put my finger on exactly what it is about long way round. And honestly, I think it's vulnerability. I think the fact that it was just so pure the way they did their video diaries and the fact that they're both actors. And so we kind of put them on this pedestal, but to see them literally breaking down and where it's not contrived. It's just, that's the experience. They're exhausted. They're going through these things that are harder than they've ever done before. And that vulnerability 
it really comes through. It's so authentic. And you just get this feeling of, man, these guys are out there just pushing their own personal limits, but then they succeed in it. And you see them and that, you know, Ewan's not the most incredible rider and, and he's always, you know, <laughs> the one that's falling down. And then, you know, you've got Charlie going through his things and just the fact that they bear themselves and they didn't edit that stuff out and they kept that there. It just, it made it so accessible. I think it was like, wow, they rode around the world. That's so amazing. Mm -hmm. But I think I can do it too because they didn't elevate themselves to this point of being superheroes. They stayed very human. And I think it just, I think that's what made it so accessible and why so many people are inspired to go give it a go. I think it's a really good point, Justin, that you, you I mean, I've recognized as well that the vulnerability, there's no doubt there's stuff in there that you think, man, why didn't they just edit that out? That made them look so bad, but that's the whole point, you know, is, is, uh, is to keep it real. And then, and then like you're saying, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. You know, they didn't put themselves on a pedestal, at least not the way most people saw the, the video series. They were real. And um, yeah, and then and then you get inspired and, and you go off on yours. Now, did you complete it without a problem or, or did you go through the same sort of trials and tribulations that they went through? Yeah, cer certainly. I mean, would it be an adventure without hiccups? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it was really interesting. I, I did get to do some, some work. Uh, I didn't immediately have the access physically to be able to get on a motorcycle. So what I did is as soon as I could walk with just one crutch again, kind of with a cane, I booked a trip down to South America to go back down. And I started out in Peru where I knew that I was familiar with the area. I knew that I could rent a motorcycle there. And so I did some small trips around Peru and then I flew to Buenos Aires to get a feel for Buenos Aires. I flew to Santiago, Chile, and then I wanted to find out about the Carretera Austral. And so I flew down to Puerto Montt and rented a car and checked out a little bit of the Carretera Austral to see what it would look like. And, and that's the tip of Patagonia. That's the north end of Patagonia. And so I got a feel for what was going on, even though I wasn't really ready to be able to do a long motorcycle trip yet. And after doing that, I got a feel, I got my Spanish speaking skills up a little bit, a little more familiarity. And then I came home and it was kind of in the sights. I felt like, okay, I think I can do this. But I was still working a full-time job as an interior trim carpenter in the mountains of Colorado. And I didn't really know when or how I was going to be able to go. And so my just building my strength, really getting my physical fitness back. I got a season of skiing back under my belt. I really wanted to get back on the horse that broke me. And after doing that, I, I felt like it was in my sights and I started shopping for a motorcycle. And that's where I was just, you know, obsessed with being online, looking at different adventure bikes and what I could fit, what would be in the budget, all of those questions that we go through. And then it was a stroke of luck that was actually a huge bummer for most people. But the housing market crash in 2008 hit Vail about a year later and the hotel project that I was managing got shut down for rebid. 
And my boss came to me and said, Hey, don't worry. You know, we're going to keep you on staff and, but we're going to be letting a lot of people go. And I looked at him and I said, Hey, you know, a lot of my coworkers have young kids and I don't. Is there any way that I can volunteer to give up my job? And he was like, sure. Are you crazy? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'd, I'd really like to make sure that somebody else who needs it more can have the position. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, this was the perfect thing to happen. It's time for me to go now. It's time for me to go do this trip. Mm. But what was your mobility at that point? I mean, are you fully recovered? I'd say probably high 90% recovered. So what, what do you, you know? notice? Uh, still stiffness and soreness in my hip. Um, when I would spend any significant time in the saddle, uh, I was still riding an 87 Honda Shadow at that time. Um, whenever I would ride for a couple hours at a time, it took a little bit to get off the bike. It took a little bit to get walking without a limp. That was always my big key marker was I wanted to be able to walk without anyone noticing that, that I had had an injury. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but I would, I would have to stretch out a lot more. You know, it was, it was, and honestly more than my, my hip. It was the stuff that I had broken in my back, um, the ribs that I had broken. I had also fractured my scapula lengthwise. And none of that stuff really could get attended to because the hip was the primary thing to repair. So all those months on crutches didn't really help with all those fractures in my back. And so I would get really stiff riding a motorcycle right, right between my shoulder blades. I think a lot of us motorcyclists know that whether you've had an injury or not, there's that sweet spot right between your shoulder blades. It tends to get, you know, tense, mm -hmm. but otherwise I was pretty good. You know, I was mountain biking already. I was walking already. So physically I was, I was there. How long was it from the accident until this time we were about to go on this trip? Probably pushing right up on just shy of 24 months. So two years um, from the time that I, I broke it until I was getting ready to go. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. a long time to recover. It, it was really in my mind. And again, this, this might sound like a leap to folks that have been through more tragic injury, but it, it was pretty miraculous. Like the fact that that I was given this second opportunity at an athletic life. It's definitely something I don't take for granted. So this trip that you, you have planned, what is it, what is it going to be? Really? I, I try, I tried to not put a lot of definition on it. I, I wanted to go to the bottom of South America. That was the goal. But I also had it clear in my head that, if I didn't make it all the way there, that was all right. All I wanted to be sure was that I wasn't in a rush. And so the job was gone now. I got rid of things that I could. I put things that I couldn't part with into storage and really prepped myself. Uh, you know, I had read some books that were pretty influential in managing debt and not having a lot of overhead. Um, back in the, in the home country or the first world, that those would be 
the expenses that would be tremendous compared to what it was going to cost to live in the third world. And so I got rid of my cell phone. I got rid of anything that had a subscription. I, I cut all the costs that I could. Uh, I, I sublet my room. I was living with three other skiers and snowboarders in Colorado and we're all great friends. And I found someone that would be suitable to move into that town home and really just severed all the financial ties that I had, or finance, I should say financial costs that I had on the ledger in order to be able to stretch my money. And, you know, I didn't have a tremendous amount of money in the bank and I knew that I was going to need to stretch it to get as far as I could. And I didn't know how far I would be able to take it. So, but the goal was to not be in a hurry. I knew that this would be a once in a lifetime shot potentially. And so looking at it through that lens, I not knowing when I would get to do this again, I just knew from previous travels that being in a hurry was not what I wanted. And what are you riding? I chose, this is an interesting thing because I, I was right at the time I was training, I, I knew I needed to up my off-road game and I hadn't done a lot of off-roading on a high performance motorcycle at the time. I had tons of mountain bike experience and I had been riding motorcycles, obviously, as we've talked about since I was a kid and most of that being, you know, off the pavement until I was licensed. And so I went out and I bought myself a Honda CRF 450X to train on. Nice competition enduro bike. And I was riding with a good friend of mine, Fritz Hubbard, and another friend, Farnham St. John. And we were riding the, the single track trails in Colorado, which are incredible. And it was great training ground. But I remember the first ride on that 450X, I kicked that thing to life and I headed up this sand wash and I hit second gear and instantly became a passenger on that bike. And <laughs> what I mean by that is I was holding on for dear life in this death grip whiskey throttle heading up this sand wash with my feet flailing behind the rear fender somewhere. I probably looked more like a cape on that motorcycle than a human being. And I finally got it in control and, and got, I'm like, oh man, like I thought I knew how to ride a motorcycle. And all of a sudden it was this instant awareness of how much I had to learn about riding off-road. And so that was incredible to, to really get that opportunity. And I think that was one of the most important things that I did was spend that time learning how to ride really technical terrain on a dirt bike. But during this time, you know, you get winded, you're up in the mountains, you get these beautiful vistas and you pull the helmets off and you're just taking in all this incredible scenery. I had a lot of time to chat with Fritz and we would talk about this trip that I've got on, on the horizon. And he's like, well, what are you going to take? And I think, well, I think I'm going to take a KLR 650. It's, it's really the, the right bike. It's what I can afford. And he looks at me and he goes, Justin, come on. You like to ride fast. You like to ride hard. You really want to wake up every day and get on a KLR 650? <laughs> and I think to myself, you know, Fritz, you're probably right. And it's no real diss to the KLR 650. That thing is ubiquitous 
adventure motorcycle. It's incredible. It's taken more people around the world than probably any other single motorcycle. But there's this point where I, I just, I love motorcycles so much. Fritz's point was, is this the bike that you, that you really want to be on every day? Is this what you're going to be excited to wake up and get on every day? And when he asked me that, I, I immediately thought back, I had been perusing all the for sale bikes on Adventure Rider. And I, I look back and uh, I thought about this all black KTM 950 Adventure that was for sale. And I'm like, you know what? I think that's the bike I want to ride every single day. Mm-hmm. And so I started communications with a guy in South Dakota who's trying to sell the bike. And it couldn't have been in a greater place in the world because, you know, South Dakota's famous for Harley Davidson V-Twin Cruisers. Sure. It's not really the, the heart of adventure, especially 12 years ago. And so this guy was having a terrible time trying to sell this 950. And I just kept watching his price go down oh, and go stuck down. stuck with it. Oh, I see. And go down. And eventually it hit a point where I'm like, you know what, someone else is going to snatch this bike up. So I called him up and we made a deal and I left it with more money and cash than I've ever had on my person ever. And I flew up to Rapid City on a one-way ticket and I, I bought that 950 Adventure. And so that's what I chose to take to the bottom of South America. Well, the 950 Adventure choice then, is it was strictly out of passion. Not, not I mean, you weren't being pragmatic there. I mean... When it comes down to it, I think that almost every motorcycle purchase is really one that's based in emotion. Mm. And we talk about this in sales all the time. I mean, you can talk till you're blue in the face. If someone is not moved emotively by the bike they're looking at, they're probably not going to buy it. Mm -hmm. And so this bike just looked Dakar rally ready. To me, it was just like... Oh, incredible. And it was an all black one with the, the orange pinstriped KTM logo, you know, so it wasn't so bold as the pumpkin orange one, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and it just, man, I, I fell in love with it, you know. What was it like for um, maintenance and reliability on your trip? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, funny. You should ask that. I, uh, having grown up riding Hondas my whole life, I'm a pretty dismal mechanic and I really didn't oh, wait learn. A second, f- wait a second. You're, you're saying because you rode Hondas, you never had to fix them. That's what you're saying. They just rarely <laughs> ever right. break. I mean, you can just abuse them, right. put them away wet and dirty, take them out two months later, push the button and they fire right mm-hmm. up and want to go again. You know, it's like my opportunity to learn was severely limited by choosing Hondas in my early life. So, so you can blame them for that. Yeah, boy, I'll tell you. So the KTM was a different story. So picking that up, you know, a high horsepower V-twin LC8 engine that's just a, a fantastic motorcycle. It's super exciting. It's very raw. And yet, it because of that, it's, you know, their slogan is ready to race. When I started selling motorcycles against KTM, I would always say, you also better be ready to wrench. And (laughs) that proved very well true. Now, there wasn't a lot of problems that were super deep with the bike, but I really needed to learn about maintenance. 
I had shaft drive motorcycles growing up, shaft drive underpowered V-twin Honda Shadows. And now all of a sudden I have a high-powered chain drive motorcycle. And so learning how to adjust the tension on the chain was something that I didn't know how to do. I needed to learn that. Um, tube tires on, on spoked wheels. So I needed to learn how to be able to replace a tube mm-hmm. and things like that were the start into becoming more proficient with tools. Um, uh, the oil change, if you know anybody who bike. has a KTM 950, yep. the oil change is a two and a half hour process. The first time you do it, you might be able to whittle it down to two hours. And if you can keep track of all the fairing bolts and all the little rubber grommets and everything that goes into putting, taking off the whole left side bodywork to access the oil tank. There's a lot that goes into keeping a KTM 950 going. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because most of the work that you're doing to change the oil on that has nothing to do with changing the oil other than it access. Honestly, it does not. Yeah. And, you know, you better have some Loctite handy if you're going to be riding rough terrain because you are, you're pulling apart everything. And then I had crash bars on my, my 950 and they weren't straight anymore. And so getting them on and off and back onto the bike, I mean, it just is always a process. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's probably one of the, the shortcomings of that bike. It was built that way, obviously for, for rally racing. And when you've got a team or you're, you're a proficient rally mechanic, pulling that thing apart and putting it back together, it's a no brainer. You know, you know what to do and you just zip it all apart with power tools. But, you know, when you're doing it with an L-shaped Allen wrench instead of a T-handle, you know, and you're doing it on a, a parking lot or a gravel, you know, courtyard inside of a hostel in a third world country, you know, that's, it's a totally different experience. Mm-hmm. So what did you learn on your trip? Well, to keep my tools handy, but <laughs> no, I say that, you know, it's funny to joke about it, but honestly, that KTM, I did 33,000 miles over 16 months and that bike did really, really well for me. Um, I expended a lot of rear tires and I went through two clutches. Uh, although the first clutch could have very well been the original clutch that was in it. I bought the bike with 19,000 miles on it, knowing that I wanted to go through the bike before I left and learn about it. So really to no fault of the KTM, it was already, you know, up in its miles when I took off and started the trip. So Honestly, the bike did fantastic. It's, it, was a, it was a great bike and it was always exciting to ride it. But I had some really good advice on a really beautiful place in Baja. I was camped out maybe in my first week of the trip at Playa Santispac on the Bahia Concepcion. And I was there and this guy comes in off this sailboat and I mean, really, this beautiful catamaran sailboat. And he gets in this little inflatable dinghy, comes up to the beach, and we're there, blissed out. The guy I was traveling with at the time, his name was Al. He was riding a brand new F800 GS. And we were just taking our first day off of not riding and just taking in the bliss of this place. And this guy gets out of this rubber boat and he just beelines it to us. And we're chatting and we're chatting. And he says, hey, I, you know, I've, I've ridden a KTM 950 a bunch. I'm sure you've noticed there's two distinct characters to that engine. And I'm like, oh, yeah, man, you get it above 5,500 RPMs and that thing just wants to go. 
And he's like, well, where are you heading on your journey? And I'm like, oh, I'm going to Tierra del Fuego. And he's like, oh, cool. Well, if you want to make it there, you should try to ride it in that engine that's below 5,500 RPMs. And that was really, really interesting information. And uh, the gentleman turned out to be Larry Rosler of uh, Baja Racing fame. And I didn't know who he was, but his buddy that had come in off the boat when Larry had stepped away and was talking to some of the other people around. He said, hey, do you know who that is? And I'm like, no, I don't have a clue. And he he told me who it was. And I was like, okay, well, I guess this guy knows his stuff, so I better listen. And <laughs> I did my best to stay out of that upper end of the LC8. But, you know, sometimes it's hard not to twist that throttle. Yeah, it'd be a fun bike. So this trip that you did, did it change anything for you? Everything. It changed the entire trajectory of my life. In what ways? So I I got through, you know, I went through 15 different countries. I realized that there was nothing that I loved more than traveling new roads and meeting new people and seeing new cultures and being immersed in those cultures. On a motorcycle, you have this this incredible access to everything around you. And obviously people listening to this podcast are probably motorcycle enthusiasts already. So you, you know this, there's no windows to roll down. And more specifically, there's no windows to roll up. <laughs> you are there. You're in the moment. You're, you're completely present in your surroundings. And that means that if someone wants to walk up and approach you when you stop, you don't have a lot of option to to close that door, or close that window. And that, that has brought so many exciting conversations and so many unique situations of pointing at the map in the tank bag and saying, you know, I'm going here and see their eyes light up. And they're like, well, they try to tell you how to get there. And you realize that a lot of these folks in these villages, they've never really been very far out of their village. So I learned quickly to if I knew where I was to try to only point one or two towns away, if I was trying to get directions and that really helped, um, they would be able to point me, okay, you go down this road and you'll get to that town. And, you know, I traveled on that trip without GPS. I used only paper maps and it was just such an exciting time of my life of not really having a destination. But I just knew that this was my favorite thing to do. If I, if I had the resources, I would just do it forever. And that, that's definitely what changed the, the direction of my life. And through some funny twists and turns, I ended up in Alaska selling motorcycles after that trip when I finally did need to put some more money in the bank account. Is that because Alaska was on your route? I mean, you just sort of ended up there? Or- you know, it wasn't on my route. I, I met a young lady from Alaska in Ecuador and she traveled with me the second half of that journey. And I thought we would be together for the rest of our lives. And so we we moved back to her hometown and her family were, uh, was involved in a motorcycle business that I didn't really know until much later in the journey. I think she intentionally kept that uh, a secret. And uh so they had just taken on a, a BMW franchise in their already existing Harley Davidson dealership. And so we decided we would go up to Alaska just for a summer and I would work at the dealership and we would kind of put some money in the bank. And 
the relationship didn't last, but the job did. And I stayed in that position for eight years uh, as the BMW brand manager of Trails End BMW. And I was also one of the lead salespeople for Farthest North Harley-Davidson. And so I sold any motorcycles that we had on our book of business. Uh, I spent some time as the Harley Owners Group chapter manager, as well as being the BMW brand manager. So it definitely led to my ability to be able to speak to folks on both sides of the fence, if you will. Mm. So that, that's pretty interesting, though. You come back from the trip and just dive right into motorcycles, so much for carpentry. Yeah. And that was something that was super unexpected for me. I, I really never thought that I would be able to make a living in the motorcycle industry. I guess I just was unaware, you know, and didn't have any idea. Things went really well. And I found that I had already learned from from my journeying how to live like a a peasant backpacker, I guess. <laughs> And stretching those dollars out through that South America trip really gave me the wherewithal to be able to, to stretch my budget. And I found that I didn't really need a huge income. And since I was doing something that I absolutely loved, it all of a sudden didn't feel like work anymore. Well, so this is a bit of an ongoing theme for you then. Once you learned about, you know, your subscriptions and all the stuff that drains our money away, you, you sort of live your life this way now to save your money, I guess, for motorcycle travel and toys. You know, I'd love to say that I don't spend money foolishly sometimes, but I think that every now and again, we've got to treat ourselves. But no, I really do live a, a pretty simple life other than this growing motorcycle collection that I have that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I'm not accusing you of never <laughs> wasting money. I think you've got what, eight bikes or something like that? Eight motorcycles or something? Oh, I've lost track. I just <laughs> added another one the other day just because of emotional attachment. So yeah, I, I have more motorcycles than sense, I think. But uh, it's great. You can you hold know, on to them. Yeah, it is great. I and I did finally at at age let's see, at age 46 I I bought my very first house and so I've I've never had a home before. So now all of a sudden I have a home. I have a mortgage. I'm seeing that, you know, those tried and true things that allowed me so much freedom and travel are slowly slipping away from me if I'm not careful, but mm. uh I think I made a smart purchase on a home I chose to buy in Bishop, California, which is not an easy place to find a house and uh, just surrounded by physical landscape beauty. And I have about a quarter mile of pavement separating my garage from thousands of miles of incredible off-road riding into Death Valley, up into the Eastern Sierra. So I'm taking that burden on in stride. Right, right. Plus, it gives me a garage and a driveway to put my my trailers and motorcycles. So. Which is very handy, there's no doubt. you got to have a plate with this many bikes, you need a place to store them. Hey, I was going to say, with the um, w- with working as uh, like in the motorcycle industry, did that sort of change anything for you as far as your... Because you know how you hear from the you know people, this happens all the time, where somebody will, will take something that they love and make it their vocation, then all of a sudden it becomes this, I don't know, this, this, this suit that you have to wear. Did you find any of that with working at the BMW dealer? You know, it's certainly something to stay focused on. Um, it's easy to let our, once your passion becomes your vocation, it's easy to let the vocation part take over and find some, 
some mundanity in it. I'll say that if I said that I've never lost any bit of that passion through working in the industry, that would be a downright lie. That's, that wouldn't be true. It certainly, once it becomes work, it it loses some of its shine. Mm -hmm. But I think that if you're careful about it, and I think if you stay focused on, on your love for your passion, that there's ways to avoid that burnout. And so far for me, it's been shifting towards other people's stories. Everyone that I meet, I don't really think of them as customers or clients. It's an opportunity to meet a new friend that also loves the things that I love. And so hearing what brought them to motorcycling and what inspires them about motorcycling, that's that's really what keeps me excited about it. It's true that the more I work in motorcycling, the less I seem to do free riding of my own desire. And so that's, it, it is a challenge and it's something that it's really important to, to keep focused on getting out and, and riding for fun outside of just riding for business. You, you've done all kinds of riding. Though. I mean, you've been, you know, many places around the world riding. You were to Mongolia, were you? Yeah, I did. I crossed Mongolia in 2016. That's probably one of my favorite trips, really. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, it was a really interesting thing. I never really, I had always been in the back of my mind. I think all of us adventure riders, we have this, this fascination with Mongolia as being like as far away as you can get, you know, and it's just so remote and, and roadless. so challenging. It's kind of like one of those things to, to accomplish, to have that, that feather in your cap. And the way I got to my opportunity was really happenstance. It was, I was in Fairbanks sitting at my sales desk at Trails End BMW and it was a rainy day. And in, in Alaska, when it starts to rain, it immediately turns to about 45 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's, there's just not a lot of action on the sales floor in a power sports dealership when it's cold and raining. Hmm. And I was perusing Horizons Unlimited's for sale ads because I certainly needed more motorcycles in my life. Of course. And I saw an ad for two Africa twins for sale in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. And I thought, well, I don't have anything going on right now. I'm going to send this guy an email. And so I saw that there was an email for a guy named Chinzo. And so I type up this email. Hey, Chinzo, I see, you know, I got your name and email off of this ad that you have for these motorcycles for sale. And, you know, I'm not really interested in your motorcycles, but I would love to come ride Mongolia someday. I'm in Alaska right now and I'm bored at work and I just thought I'd shoot you an email. And surprisingly, he sent me an email back and he was really excited and really hospitable with his time and information and told me that if I was ever wanting to come and I found the time that that I should look him up and that I should come to Mongolia. And so a couple years passed by and I remembered that that exchange that I had had and I dug back into my inbox and I found Chinzo's email and I sent him a message. I said, hey, Chinzo, I still really want to come to Mongolia. I don't know when a good time will be. But and he wrote back and he said, Justin, you should really come in September. They're filming this movie called The Eagle Huntress, and we're going to be out supporting out in the far western province of Mongolia called Ulgi province. And you can ride a motorcycle across the country 
And then you can be at the Eagle Festival and see all these horseback riders with their trained golden eagles that are trained to hunt. And they have a sort of rodeo and we'll be there and we can host you. And then you can fly back to Ulaanbaatar and we'll put your motorcycle onto a truck and bring it back. And that way you don't have to worry about the impending snowstorms that will come in October. And I thought, well, that's amazing, but I don't have a motorcycle in Mongolia. And he's like, well, don't worry. I run a rental business. We'll have a motorcycle for you. And I figured, well, geez, this is like the stars aligning right here. How can I say no to this? So I booked a flight to Mongolia, not knowing what motorcycle I would ride, not knowing really what I would do about a route and that I would learn everything that I needed to know when I, when I arrived on site. And so that was kind of the biggest challenge. It was like, okay, who are you really as an adventure rider now? You've got all the things that normally are sorted before you leave for a trip. So come up with some luggage that'll work on any motorcycle. Come up with kit that'll be good for fall in Mongolia and get ready to go traverse a country that you've always been amazed by, but that you really know nothing about. And so that was, that was a really exciting trip for me. What was it like? It was amazing. So getting to Mongolia is not easy. I flew first to Istanbul, from Istanbul to Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, had a layover there. Then I went to, into Ulaanbaatar and landing, I realized that, wow, here we go. This is for real. And when I got to the luggage carousel, only one of my duffel bags arrived. Oh, no. And instantly, I realized that all of this planning that I had done to make sure that I had all of these extraneous unknowns covered by being such a well-prepared planner and packer, all of a sudden that went straight out the window as I realized that I didn't even know what was in each bag. And so I had no helmet. I had no motocross boots, but I had my jacket and pants. I didn't have my giant loop bag, which was the key to this was that, Hey, I've got a piece of luggage that will fit any motorcycle. Oh, because well, it's, it, suddenly it straps onto any bike, just straps onto the back. It, it does. It's right. a, a horseshoe shaped. I, I almost always refer to it as looking like a neck pillow, an oversized <laughs> neck right. pillow that you throw on the back of your motorcycle and strap it to the passenger foot pegs. Yeah, it's a great It's an incredibly handy piece of kit to have when you are switching motorcycles frequently. And so I was just really excited that I was going to put this new piece of kit to use and all of a sudden I don't have it. And so I'm thinking, okay, it's no problem. My luggage will show up tomorrow. I talked to the lost luggage people and they informed me that the next plane will be here in two days. And I quickly realized that I am, in fact, as far away as you can mostly get in the world. There's not even daily plane service into the capital city of Mongolia. And I mean, the weight of that, the, I just, you learn to go, go with the flow on these trips. If you don't, you instantly get burned out and you probably don't do many more of these trips. So 
I got picked up by Drive Mongolia. This is the company that Chinzo and his partners own. And they brought me to a guest house called Oasis. And many overland travelers that have gone through Mongolia know Oasis. People end up there when they're waiting for their visas into China, into Russia. It's this kind of hub of international overland travelers, backpackers taking the train, people in four by fours. So I get there and there's really no one around. It's pretty empty. And the gal at the desk says, well, there's a motorcyclist up in the bunk room. Would you like a bed in the bunk room? And I said, yeah, sounds great. And so I walk upstairs and I plop my duffel bag down on the bunk. And this guy, John, looks up from his bed and he says, hey, mate, how's it going? And I'm like, oh, good. I'm kind of bummed out. My luggage didn't show up. And I'm all downtrodden. And he looks at me. He's like, it's okay, man. It's all going to work out. And I'm like, well, good. I'm glad you're so optimistic. What's your story? And he's like, oh, I've just done the Siberski extreme route. And I'm here waiting for some parts. And I'm going to head off to Vladivostok and continue on back to Canada. And he had ridden the WR250 from Vancouver all the way to the bottom of South America, shipped to England. And then rode the Siberski Extreme Route, which is a very challenging dual sport oriented off-road route all the way across Asia. And I thought, wow, all right, man, I guess I'm just an, a novice, you know, and we start exchanging travel stories and you, you immediately realize that no matter how accomplished you think you are in the adventure motorcycle world, that really there's someone out there that you're just about to meet that's been so many more places and been through so many more struggles. And so John befriended me and we went on a several day beer drinking party, meeting all of these overland travelers that just came into Oasis each day with their own challenges. And so I would spend hours trying to track down my luggage and it's almost like a video game. You're trying to unlock the next level, like sit on the phone on hold for hours and speak to someone in Turkey from Turkish Airlines. And then they get you to someone else and then someone else. And it's just, it seems like this never ending labyrinth of phone calls and being put on hold. And eventually I ended up back to someone in Mongolia who really took a care for the situation that I was in and took it upon herself to find my bag. And she ended up finding it in Tel Aviv, Israel. <laughs> of all places, it had gone from Turkey to Israel instead of from Turkey to Mongolia. And so after having sorted this hodgepodge of gear, some youth-sized goggles, a helmet that was two sizes too big with its visor covered in packing tape, so useless. And I got some <laughs> rusted out of panniers, which was crazy. They were made out of aluminum diamond plate. But because the one of the pannier lids had blown away somewhere crossing from Germany, this bike that I got was a 1989 Honda Transalp. And it had crossed from Germany to Mongolia, I don't know how many years previous to me getting a hold of it. And so we found some hard panniers that could go on it, but one of the luggage lids had been made out of steel, 
like not stainless steel, nothing like this steel pannier lid. And it was all rusted and patinaed. And this bike just looked incredibly out of place at this overland hostel where there's all these amazing overland bikes and four by fours. And so the guys, they just, you know, took to making me kind of the butt of the traveling joke, which was, you know, really fun. But I woke up one morning and this was before my luggage had been found and I was feeling pretty down and I walked downstairs and I get a cup of coffee and I walk outside and I'm like, what is that on my motorcycle? And I walk over and they had found a pail that the bottom had rusted out of it. And they strapped this pail to the back of my bike. And as I walk out with my coffee dumbfounded, they looked at me and they said, Hey, we thought your bike looked a little out of place without a top box. So we found a top box for you. <laughs> and I'm just like, I, I just, I was so at wit's end with this struggle with luggage. I just burst out laughing. It totally made my day. And then I found out later that day that my luggage would arrive and that I could continue my journey. And so I had become such good friends with John and Stefan. Stefan was from Germany on a KTM 1190 that they said, hey, man, we're, we know you're here to do this amazing solo trip, but we've just kind of taken to you and we think we're going to be bored without someone to pick on. So what do you say we join you for the first leg of your trip? Neither of us has been to the Gobi, so we'd like to go down to the Gobi Desert with you. And then when we come back to the Central Altai, we'll come back to Ulaanbaatar and carry on with our journeys and you can head off alone across the wilds of Mongolia to Ulgi. And that first week was the most incredible part of the trip. And I really don't think that I would have been successful in making it through the trials and tribulations of Mongolia without getting on my feet with these seasoned travelers that had just crossed Asia. Wow. The great thing of bumping into other people, like-minded. It's really amazing. You know, it's like, it's, it was Ted Simon, I, and I'm going to just slaughter this paraphrase, but it's, you know, when you have trouble and you're on the side of the road and you don't have the resources to fix your problem, it's when he realized that this was the opportunity that he was going to meet someone new who'd be coming down the road with the mm -hmm. solution to his problem. Yeah, who's going to come by I've, and help? Oh man, I've thought back to that so many times and you just often until it's in hindsight, you really don't know sometimes even what had been brought along. The friendship of these two guys at a point when I probably may have lost it and, and packed up and headed back home. I just, it was their support and their friendship and their constant chiding that just, you know, they had been through it. They had already dug themselves out of wheel deep mud in the middle of nowhere and been through countless hiccups coming across Asia. It was that experience of having been out there that just really gave me that support, you know, and showing me how that Mongolia is so different. There's no real roadmap that makes sense. There's no road signs to know where to go. And you just go until it's going to be time to set up camp and you pull off, you get out of sight of any roads and you set up camp and you have your camp, you have your dinner, 
You wake up in the morning, you break your camp, you get back to that nearest semblance of a road or two track, and you head off in the general direction that you're headed. And each time you come to a junction, you pretty much look and say, okay, well, I'm heading west and that road goes west, but kind of south. And that one goes west, but kind of, I guess I'll take the middle one. (laughs) And it's a really a choose your own adventure. It doesn't always work out. Sometimes you backtrack to the nearest town and try to get help. But, you know, I don't speak Mongolian. I don't speak Russian. And so often it was just charades and pointing again at that map, picking the next nearest town that I'm heading towards and having someone point me in the direction with a smile and a nod. And that'll get you there. But my biggest challenge that I overcame in Mongolia and not without lots of support from Drive Mongolia as my fixers, I ended up not not being super proficient with GPS. I had set my GPS to shortest distance. Mm. And what happened with that is as I got into the central Altai, I was trying to find these beautiful sand dunes that John had showed me pictures of. And I thought, man, I want to go and experience these sand dunes. And so I had put in the, the pin that he had shared with me, but it was, since it was set to shortest distance, it took me over a mountain range. And by the time I realized what had happened, I had already exhausted enough fuel that I didn't have enough fuel to turn around and go back to the primary route through the mountains that likely went through an established canyon and a well-worn pass. And instead, I found myself on what could only be described as a very rudimentary two-track. And there was no one out there other than, than horsemen that I encountered. So, so it does have and, you on a, on a trail, but it's not, not going like straight across the mountains. It's on a trail, but it's just that it's not a very well-used trail, not, set, not made for motorcycles. Definitely a two-track. And so there's some sort of calm in the fact that, well, this must go somewhere. And so I'm pushing along. I had reached about 7,000 feet at this point, and the sun's starting to set behind the mountains. I probably had a couple hours of daylight left, but I'm about to lose my direct light. And I can see a storm coming in from the West. And I'm starting to realize that, boy, this is going to be a challenging day. Like it's five o'clock in the afternoon. I'm nowhere near my next fuel stop. I'm concerned about how much fuel I have, but I'm not panicked. And I come to one of probably... 20 water crossings of that day and it doesn't look terribly wide so I'm I'm thinking okay but water crossings were certainly the my kind of my biggest trepidation in Mongolia there's some water crossings I'd heard of that can just swallow you and so I'm looking at this picking my route and I could see where the 4x4 traffic has gone through and really chewed it up and so I think that looks like a really smooth exit right over there. I'm going to shoot for that. And so I head into this water and I'm making it across in first gear. Everything's fine. And I get ready to kind of blip the throttle and lighten that front wheel to come out of the water. 
And right as I do that, the front wheel drops twice as deep and hits the bank of the stream and brings me to a dead stop. Mm. And I'm like, oh no. And so I push my, plunge my feet down into the water. Instantly water's flooding into the vents on my climb adventure rally pants. And I push back to try to dislodge the bike and I give it another blip with the clutch and the throttle at the same time. And the engine revs up, but I go nowhere. And I'm like, oh no, I just smoked the clutch. And the clutch had been giving me little signs of maybe being at its last leg, but it was managing okay and I was being cautious with it. And now I realize as the water is getting deeper and deeper on the upstream side of the bike that I'm stuck in a creek with a burnt clutch on this motorcycle in the middle of nowhere at the onset of the first winter storm of the season. And it's about to be dark. Now, do you have any sat phone with you or anything? I did have an inReach with me, but that wasn't even on my mind at this point. Like I, I try to, I mean, that's really a last resort in my mind. I mostly use it to communicate that I'm okay back to my mother And that was a deal that we had made when I set off to South America is that I would check in okay each night so she could sleep easy. So I'm not even really thinking of the inReach at this point as being my solution. I'm thinking I'm now wet. It's cold. I'm at elevation. I'm going to be facing hypothermic situation here if I don't act swiftly. And so I start to remove everything off the bike. I'm within distance to be able to throw stuff up onto the bank of this creek. And so I start undoing everything and I'm already thinking through, okay, I got to get shelter put up immediately because I could get rain along with these snow flurries. I've got to get warm water. I've got to have everything all situated before I start getting out of this wet gear and getting into dry clothing immediately if I'm going to make it through the night alive. So I'm thinking through my my plan of attack. And I, I all of a sudden I hear this sound. This chick, chick, chick. It sounds like, I don't know, a wind-up toy. I don't even know how to describe it. And I turn around and I see it's one of these ubiquitous Russian 4x4 vans that you see all over Mongolia. And I haven't seen anyone in hours. And here comes this van out of nowhere while I'm struggling to get out of this stream. And I know that I can't let this guy pass me by. I'm not going to see anybody else. So I'm waving to him and yelling to him in English. And I'm sure he saw the size of my eyes inside of my helmet. And he stopped. And I very similar to the code of ethics we have in Alaska. You don't ever leave someone stranded on the side of the road. And I found out later from my Mongolian friends that this is absolutely a code of honor out in the steppe, that you would never leave anyone in need alone on the steppe or you will get, you will have bad karma. Mm -hmm. And this guy stopped. He had a five-year-old boy with him in the car and he helped me get the bike out of the stream 
And I was able through charades to tell him that my, that my bike wouldn't go. And we struggled and loaded that big motorcycle into the back of his van. And he took me to his yurt, but not without a long story of trials and tribulations is really a long drawn out story. But I spent the night in a yurt as the only English speaking person. And it was probably one of the richest, most inspiring experiences of all of my travels to see this hospitality and the like communication that can happen with a smile and eye contact is incredible. The night before I had been alone in my tent reading about ethics around uh, the yurt environment in the steppe just by happenstance. And so I knew that men go in and go to the left and that women go in and go to the right. And now being in this family yurt that's not set up for tourism, but set up for subsistence, I could see that the right-hand side was set up as the kitchen. There was discs of yogurt hanging up drying into hard curd. There was chopped up meat on a cutting board that was set down low at the cool part of the tent. There was a big pot of water that had been gathered and that was set there that they dipped out and boiled water. And within 30 seconds to a minute of being in there, I was given one of the only stools that they had, a wood stool about 10 inches off the ground only, to sit on. And everyone else was sitting on the ground. And I realized that they were treating me as if I were royalty. And another minute, I was handed a bowl of warm milk. And at that point in the dark, in the cold in Mongolia, surrounded by only Mongolians, nothing more comforting than sipping this warm milk and having them nodding like, oh, it's good. It's good, right? <laughs> it just, it was the essence of what, what I look for in adventure. It, it just really touched me. And true to what Ted Simon said, uh, you know, it's, it's incredible. The, the people you end up meeting, that experience, as you said, that's not a tourist setup. That's real people just living life. Yeah. And it was amazing. I got to spend 24 hours with them. The, the man of the, the camp, his name was Gamba. And we figured out, you know, by, by pointing to our chest and saying, Justin, and then pointing to him and he points to his chest with his hand and says, Gamba. And that level of communication at such a raw, vulnerable moment, it just instantly, like, just hit me like, wow, I've got nothing to worry about. I am safe. I am warm. I have food in front of me that I'm sure is going to come my way likely before they feed themselves. And it was that just overwhelming feeling that even though everything was out of my control, everything I had prepared for up to this moment had been taken out away. And I, I was left with out being able to solve my own problems that here I was in this warm family environment as the first snowstorm of the season set onto the step. And 
it was amazing to see everything unfurl inside that yurt environment and that the tables got pushed to the side and they pointed to the ground and then they put their hands up to their heads, signaling that now we will sleep, you know, and I took out my sleeping bag and my air mattress and I was in the lap of luxury and they were sleeping there on, on roll out bamboo mats and with blankets. And we all laid down shoulder to shoulder on the floor of the yurt and slept there together for the night and woke up with the first light in the morning and started, the fire was started and the warm milk came back out. And then everyone exited the yurt and went about their morning chores. And I walked out of the yurt to see what everyone was doing. And there was this amazing new landscape covered in white snow so pristine and pure and all of their livestock there, these black dots and they're bringing them all in to milk them for the morning. And it just, it just brought a tear to my eye, like how simple and pure life can be. And man, I I tell you, it was, it was just the most incredible moving experience. And then I realized that I'm still an outsider here. Like I don't get to stay here, you know, like this, this paradise found is, is just a, almost a mirage for the moment because I still have a motorcycle to fix and I got to get to Ogie. I want to see this, this Eagle festival, you know? And so it's like, okay, how am I going to solve this problem? And I hiked up on a nearby mountain with my inReach and I sent a text message back to my fixers in Ulaanbaatar. And they said, don't worry, we've, we've got you. Get to the nearest town with cell service. That's your job for the day. It looks like to us, it's Yaru. And we'll get you parts. And I'm thinking, man, I know what it's like in Alaska. We don't even have overnight FedEx in Alaska. You know, it's two days for the fastest shipping. I'm like, I am a week into crossing Mongolia, how are you going to get me parts? And I just decided, you know what? They said they're going to. My, they told me my job is to get to the nearest town. So I came down off of the mountain. And when everybody came back from their chores with the animals, I started my process of trying to explain that I needed to get my motorcycle back in their van and down to Yaru. And they kept shaking their heads, no, that, that it wasn't possible. And eventually I realized that it wasn't possible because they had enough fuel to get us to Yaru, but they didn't have enough fuel to get back home. And that they wouldn't in their wildest imaginations ask for anything from me, their guest. And so once I had surfaced what the hit, the problem was, then I knew that we could get beyond this. And I knew that I could show them that, that I had two grips, I had their money and that I could pay for the fuel for their van and that I just needed to get the bike to Yaru. So, and I held the, you know, my, my inReach up to my ear to, to represent the, making a phone call and that I could, you know, take care of fixing my motorcycle from there. And they, they figured it out and, and they got me to Yaru. And a day after I got to Yaru, a new 
clutch pack that had been pulled out of another Honda Transalp in Ulaanbaatar arrived with a Mongolian man in another 4x4 Mongolian or Russian van. He pulled up in the this still ensuing snowstorm and said, I'm here to help you fix your motorcycle in Mongolian. And off we pushed the bike to the chief of police, the only garage in the whole little town. And we laid that bike down on its side and replaced the clutch pack. And I followed him out of the mountains and made it to Ulgi to the Eagle Festival on time several days later. And uh, that was that. That's one incredible adventure. You've also been in the GS Trophy. I wanted to talk about that even just for a minute. Sure. What got you interested in that? You know, that was actually a, a fallout after the the trip down to South America. I had felt like I had, you know, really accomplished a big journey. And, and so I had heard about this gathering in the Yukon every summer on summer solstice in Canada that was called Dust to Dawson. Oh, yeah. And I thought, man, that sounds cool. And all my customer friends that I had met through trails and BMW were all going to go to this rally. And I had never been one for group motorcycle experiences. Even growing up in the Midwest, Sturgis had no interest to me and I'd never been to a rally. And so I went to dust to Dawson, which is an amazing experience. Leaving from Alaska, you go over the top of the world highway and the top 19 miles hadn't been paved yet. And it was a really rough road. This was in 2011. And I got to this event and there were just a ton of people just like me. And I got this overwhelming sense of belonging out of coming to this, this group. And I just had an amazing experience there in Dawson City. And late at night on summer solstice, they have the bike games and they do a like a typical rally bike rodeo, they do the slow race. They do a blindfolded event, which is bizarre. I've never ridden a motorcycle blinded by choice. <laughs> that is bizarre. And they put a velvet hood over your head. You still wear a helmet for safety, but they put this hood over your head and it's so dark inside of this hood. You feel like you're going off to the gallows. And you're sitting there on your bike and they have a paper plate placed out in the field, essentially. It's in a parking lot, a gravel parking lot. And they shake your head all around and try to disorient you as if being blind isn't enough. And then they say, okay, go. And you have to put your feet up on the foot pegs and ride your motorcycle forward Listening to the audience. Now, the audience can do one of two things. They either like you and they tell you to stop when you're close to that plate, or they might not like you and they just yell stop anyway. And so you have to try to judge how far you've ridden and whether you're really close to that plate or not. And the person who gets their front tire closest to the plate blind wins the competition. So through all of this experience of my first ever bike rodeo, I'm just really enamored with this kind of riding a motorcycle in front of an audience and all of this. I meet a gentleman named Chad Yoshitomi. 
And Chad had been a contender in the Rawhide Adventure Rider Challenge, which is the precursor to the GS Trophy. And he was heading down later that year to try out again, to try to make the GS Trophy. He's like, Justin, you should, you should come, man. You should do this. And I thought, wow, that sounds great. So I immediately started talking and making plans for it. And it was going to happen the next year. And I convinced my boss that we should outfit an F800 GS and that I should ride from Alaska all the way down to Moab, Utah and take part in the Adventure Rider Challenge and GS Trophy Qualifier and that it would be great for our business and it would put us on the map of international destinations for adventure riding, you know, digging deep in that salesmanship. (laughs) And John agreed. My boss, John Haddad said, you know what, Justin, I think you're right. I think you should go down there and do your best. So I rode from Fairbanks and I took part in that. And uh, that was the most fun I had ever had on a motorcycle. One of those things of, of just, again, being around so many like-minded people. And then that sense of competition from my early skiing days all of a sudden came back and I realized that the bonding and the competitive spirit that happens when you're riding to the very utmost of your ability that just solidifies like glue and it just became one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done competitively on a motorcycle And so I've gone back several times to the GS Trophy Qualifier. And I definitely think if anyone out there is listening to this, the Trophy Qualifiers happen this fall, one in California and one on the East Coast. And if you've ever thought that you'd like to see what you can do on a big adventure bike, it's pretty much a trials competition on adventure bikes. And the people that you'll leave being friends with, it's just an incredible opportunity to meet people of like-minded, you know, ilk, if you will. Now, I know we've, we've uh, sort of barely scratched the surface as far as talking about your, your adventures go, but I have one question for you to, to wrap things up here. I'm curious if that new house that you bought is going to end your, your trips, is going to end those long trips. Is it changing the way you ride? You know, I think that the house kind of comes along with a relationship as well. And I've got a really incredible woman in my life and I'm super fortunate to have her. Uh, Elizabeth is an incredibly successful person and she's currently tied to a vocation, but she is a wanderlust traveler by heart. We went to Mongolia together, my second trip to Mongolia in 2018. And that was her 50th country by age 50. So she shares that deep desire for wanderlust. Nice. And I really think the home is going to be a nice place to keep a collection of motorcycles, but there will be no end to the traveling ahead of us. Justin, it was great to sit and chat with you about some of your traveling. Thank you very much for taking the time. Jim, I sure appreciate it. I just love your podcast and I feel really honored and humbled to be in the group of people you've chosen to interview. Uh, I really think adventure motorcycling has the, an incredible community of people that I love to consider as family. So thanks for doing what you do. It's incredibly awesome to listen to your podcast. Thank you very much. You're welcome.
That was Justin Kleider. Justin is now working for Harley Davidson, touring with the the Pan America. They're going to all the or a bunch of events around the U.S. In fact, if you see the Harley team at a show this summer, showing off the Pan America, Justin is going to be there. So pop by and say hello to him. Among the the many events they're going to be doing for the Pan America, they'll also be at the one that we've been advertising on this show in the Black Hills of South Dakota called the Get On ADV Fest in July, hosted by Revzilla. We have a link to that, uh, to the Get On ADV Fest on our website. And uh, we also have some interesting photos from Justin in the show notes for this episode. It's all on AdventureRiderRadio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, the listener. Thank you very much for listening. Do you realize we've been producing this show every single week since 2014? You know, if you enjoy Adventure Rider Radio, we would really appreciate it if you do a couple things for us. One, consider supporting Adventure Rider Radio. So drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on support. There's a bunch of different ways you can do it. We'd love it if you consider becoming a, a monthly patron supporter. Another thing you could do is if, if you could go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, that helps others find the show. And as podcasting is discovered by more and more people every day, your review helps those people find Adventure Rider Radio. And lastly, if you know somebody that might benefit from the information or enjoy the stories that we have on Adventure Rider Radio, please share it with them. Well, that's it. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. I will talk to you next week. This is Spencer Conway from African Motorcycle Diaries, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 